Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Here's what New Hampshire's Republican governor sounds like now when you ask him about climate change. Man-made emissions have a, a part to play in climate change. Yes, fact, done. Let's move on. But his politically powerful family hasn't always seen it that way. This global warming crisis is just the latest surrogate for an overarching agenda of anti-growth and anti-development. This week, we'll trace the history of the GOP and climate through the lens of one political family on Next from the New England News Collaborative. But first, the politics of race and legalized weed. Rich white people are making money off of this when poor black people have been affected by this. And a curator of color in Boston whose exhibition is making new connections. I would do one every year if it meant that I could make these people feel like that museum is theirs. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. For a region that's so shaped by its Puritan past, we sure are talking a lot about legalizing vices. And that's where we're going to start this week's show. First, the debate over whether or how to legalize and tax marijuana. Lawmakers in several New England states and neighboring New York are all debating this issue, and there could be movement on it this year. What's prompting the push is Massachusetts, where voters approved legalization through a ballot initiative and where the first legal pot shops opened late last year to long lines of customers from inside and outside the state. Massachusetts also wrote so-called social equity provisions into the law, which would give priority to people of color whose communities have been disproportionately impacted by high incarceration rates for drug crimes. Other states are looking to adopt this model. So WNYC's Sean Carlson drove up from the city to the closest legal shop in Massachusetts to see how these equity measures are working in reality. I've got your banana split pre-roll, your blue dream pre-roll. Yeah. Got your Hindu Kush gram. This is a cannabis dispensary in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, called Theory Wellness. It's the closest legal marijuana store to New York City, and business is good. Oh, all right, your total's gonna be one seventy-seven sixty. All right. On a recent weekday morning, the line was already out the door half an hour before opening. You might think you could head to Great Barrington to hear about the Massachusetts weed experience. But wait a second, almost everybody in here is from New York. Poughkeepsie, New York. Catskill Mountains. Woodchuck. Uh, I'm from the Hudson Valley. It's customers like these and entrepreneurs and cash-trapped local governments that are creating immense pressure to pass a New York law and fast. I'm real excited to get New York on the program. This is 30-year-old Theory Wellness Dispensary owner Brandon Pollock. I feel like I can't wait to open my own store in Manhattan. But experts and regulators in Massachusetts say, whoa, wait a second. The white elephant in the room is, well, white. Pollock is a white man, and so is the vast majority of those at the top of the cannabis industry nationwide. In Massachusetts, out of the 110 licenses approved by the State Cannabis Control Commission so far, only nine businesses are owned by women. Two are minority-owned. Jane Allen is a public health analyst with RTI International. 
the whole reason we have the equity provisions is because we are seeing disparities in arrest rates. About 80 percent of people in federal prison for drug crimes and 60 percent in Massachusetts state prison are black or Latino. And those convictions don't go away after prison in most states. That can tank your chances for a job or other opportunities. I mean, I think that it's pretty clear it's mostly wealthy white men that have moved into this space. It's not just a race issue. The Boston Globe reports that out of the 12 recreational shops open so far in Massachusetts, 10 have significant ties to large out-of-state investors. According to Theory Wellness, they are not one of them. Massachusetts passed its recreational marijuana law in December 2016. Only two years later, this past winter, the first dispensaries opened. That might seem like a long time, but... That said, it was still too fast to really make equity a reality. We have prioritized the privileged here in Massachusetts. Most would-be small business owners can't raise capital quickly enough to compete with established, mostly white, multi-state operators. It's often hundreds of thousands of dollars to get approval for licenses. And bank loans are almost impossible to get since marijuana is still illegal at the federal level. My observation is that equity tends to get lost in all of that. The thing is, it wasn't supposed to be this way. Massachusetts was the first state to take social equity into account when crafting its law. In fact, the state is supposed to prioritize potential marijuana business licensees who meet certain criteria. So a business where black or Latino people own a majority stake, or where the owner comes from a town that's been hit hard by drug arrests, or a municipality that has a large percentage of people living below the poverty line. So what happened? There are 351 towns and cities in Massachusetts, and they all have a different process. That's Shaleen Title. She's a millennial, the youngest person on the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission. She's also the one person of color on the five-person state body. The commission is the final gatekeeper on who gets approved for a marijuana license. But the commission doesn't even see those applications until they've gone through a complex process at the local level. Her advice to New York and New Jersey? Make sure regulating bodies have the power to hold local governments accountable for social equity provisions. A lot of municipalities have even said to us, we think that municipalities have too much control. Title is a former activist who wanted legalization quickly, but now she sees the wisdom in taking it slow. She knows some lawmakers right across the New York border are worried legalization could lock certain people out of a new regulated market. And she says they're right. That's something I think people of color should take more seriously. And communities that don't feel like they are getting what they should be in these laws should be very careful about when they're willing to offer their endorsements or their help passing a law because maybe it is better to wait until you have something that you're comfortable with. Title says local municipalities have told the state board that social equity isn't their mandate. They have their own criteria, whether it be economics or politics. And I think that is why you see only two minority-owned businesses that have made it through this process. That means that people whose applications should get passed up to the state level often don't. My name is Vanessa Jean-Baptiste. I'm in economic empowerment, and I'm trying to open a marijuana establishment in Massachusetts. There have been 120 candidates like Jean-Baptiste who have been approved for the state's economic empowerment program developed to help applicants from disadvantaged communities. Not one has opened a store so far. Jean Baptiste is 28 years old. She's the daughter of Haitian immigrants. She's black. She grew up here in Brockton, Massachusetts, where the average income is just about $50,000 a year and 60% of the population is black or Latino. 
At one time, people here would almost literally pull themselves up by their bootstraps in a booming shoe leather industry, but that is a memory now. For her, opening a dispensary is a way of revitalizing her hometown. To me, it's like this is a social justice issue. Brockton used to have a lot of equity. Now all the buildings are either vacant or condemning. So it's like I want to put life into Brockton because it's falling apart. Jean Baptiste started like anybody who wants to open a dispensary in Massachusetts. She scouted a location on the unused second floor of a building on the main drag here in Brockton and raised the necessary funds. But Massachusetts has these things called host community agreements. They're a legal promise that the person seeking the license has everything needed to run the business. It's up to towns and cities to give licenses to a limited number of people or groups that they vet themselves. So Jean Baptiste went to the city to say, hey, the state has certified me as having economic empowerment priority status, and I'd like to open a marijuana dispensary. But they told me I'm way ahead of the game, is quote what they told me. And because I had told them that I had a location and that I was economic empowerment. And they told me that I just had to wait because it was too early. So she waited and waited. She went back several times. But when she finally sat down with the mayor, he said the licenses were gone. And that there was nothing that he could do about it. Brockton wouldn't confirm if any of the licenses had gone to empowerment candidates, though the city says it's in favor of the program. That frustrates Jean Baptiste. She says legalization in Massachusetts is not doing what it was meant to do, make things better for the black and brown people whose lives have been devastated by previous marijuana laws. It shouldn't be like that as rich white people are making money off of this when poor black people have been arrested by this and their families have been affected by this. That was WNYC's Sean Carlson reporting. Now on to vice number two, legalized sports betting. There's already a gambling arms race among the New England states for casino bettors, but about a year ago, a new potential revenue stream opened up. The Supreme Court overturned a law that limited sports betting to Nevada, and it put the power in the hands of individual states to figure out whether or not to legalize the practice. Rhode Island and New Jersey are two of seven states that have legalized sports betting since that decision, and now others are looking to get in on the action. In Connecticut, the two big tribal casinos, Mohegan Sun and Foxwoods, used to be the only games in town. Now new casinos in Massachusetts and legal sports betting in Rhode Island are cutting into their profits. Frankie Graziano is a reporter at Connecticut Public Radio, and he's been covering this issue. He says the tribes are in talks with the state of Connecticut to negotiate a deal to allow sports betting at their casinos, which already turn over 25 percent of their slot revenues to the state. They have these existing compacts they've had since the early 90s, since the casinos were established in Connecticut. And then another thing is there's a disputed claim that the tribes have that they have exclusivity over sports betting. So that's what's leading to these negotiations, and it's kind of slowing things up a little bit. Um, I didn't get to talk to Foxwoods, but I talked to the chief of staff at the Mohegan tribe, and um, he didn't offer much in terms of when these negotiations would be done, but they say they're aware that the session's going to end in June. Okay, so the state is thinking about legalizing sports betting. A lot of states are. What's in it for the state to legalize? I mean, what, what do they get out of it? Money, John. Uh, From what I understand, uh, I I talked to one of the lawmakers that's been really uh, working on this, Joe Varenja. He's the chair of one of the House committees that the bills are going through. He says they could make something like $30 million a year by the third year. So uh, it's all about revenue. And while they're looking at policing sports betting, um, and it's really about trying to get that money from the illegal market. Okay, from the illegal market, because right now there is an illegal market for sports betting, and that's something that you reported on a little bit in in your reporting. Does that go away whenever there's legal sports betting? Well, I got to tell you, first of all, reporting on the black market ain't easy, uh, mostly because... 
not a lot of people are going to want to talk about betting illegally, right? But I had the occasion to talk to somebody who's done that in the past and was actually arrested on illegal gambling charges. Uh, that's a former local radio host, uh, Sebastian, who used to host uh, the Rock 106.9's uh, Sebastian in the Morning. His real name is Joseph Schlosser. Any state that's complaining that they're in the red, I, I still don't know why they're taking so much time to, to work this out because there's a definite market for this and it would take the place of tolls. It would take the place of other tax. Another reason why it's not easy to report on the market is because there's not really any receipts. So how are we going to estimate, like you said, John, how are we going to estimate if the market's taking a hit, right? Because they're saying it's something like an $150 billion industry. That's what the folks at DraftKings told me. Uh, that's like a daily fantasy sports giant. But I, I don't know. If we don't have receipts, how are we going to tell what the what the hit is? Okay, so there's illegal gambling right now. If it becomes legal, the state thinks that it's going to get a cut of this, and so they'll be able 10%. to make money. 10% of this, and there's the tribes, which are trying to get into the business. What are the downsides of legalizing betting in a small state like Connecticut? Uh, problem gambling. I mean, uh, addiction seems to be the biggest issue here. And, and Diana Good, she's the executive director of the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling. She says that right now there's about 35,000 people who meet the clinical criteria for problem gambling. She thinks that number could double. A lot of people who think this is a great idea just want to bring this into this century. And my feeling is that's fine. This is the ball that's rolling down the hill that the four people at the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling cannot stop. We just want to make sure when that ball rolls over someone and crushes them, there's help. Mm. Uh, one of the things that uh, we talked about earlier is that many states are trying to get into this, not just Connecticut. Uh, you mentioned New Jersey, which is in our broader region, but right next door in Rhode Island, they've already legalized. And, and you've gone to, to see how it's working so far. How's Rhode Island doing with legalized sports betting so far? Back in January, I went to a place called Twin River in, in Rhode Island. It's one of two uh, casinos that have sports betting there. I got to meet two guys from central Connecticut who drove about an hour and a half to get there. Just being here, over 100 screens, the big jumbotron, the ambiance, the fans. You got two, you know, two sets of fans. You got the Chargers and the Ravens just cheering when a big play happens. It's almost like you're at the game. That's Adam Droz. He works in insurance in Glastonbury. Um, he was there watching that Chargers-Ravens playoff game back in January. But it, when I went there, there were, seemed to be a lot of people waiting in line. You have to be at the brick-and-mortar location, and you have to wait in line. That's going to change in Rhode Island because Gina Raimondo, the governor, just signed into law mobile betting. So from what I've heard, that might come into play by October of this year. I guess one thing that we probably could learn is that those two guys who drove from Connecticut across the border to Rhode Island, they're not the only two who are taking part in that, and that's exactly who Connecticut wants to capture if they legalize. Think about it, John. Beach season's coming up. I don't think mobile betting's going to be legal by then, but imagine people going over the border to Musquamacate, enjoy some sun, it's July, and then, hey, maybe they'll pull out their phone and give some more revenue to the state of Rhode Island by betting from their phone. Okay. And I don't think Connecticut lawmakers want that, John. Frankie Graziano is a reporter. For Connecticut Public Radio, you can find links to his series on sports betting on nextnewengland.org. Frankie, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Coming up, we'll meet 25 creators in a new Boston art scene. But first, how the Republican Party's attitude toward climate change have evolved over time. It's next.
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Renewable energy projects have been growing across New England in recent years. And while offshore wind and grid-scale solar have gotten lots of attention, a smaller, more community-oriented way of getting power has been steadily taking hold, shared clean energy. Now, as Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill reports, this spring, Connecticut's first shared solar farm is expected to come online. It's a cold, sunny day. Packets of ice break underfoot as we make our way through a field packed with giant metal frames. Anthony Girolamo works with SeaTech Solar, and pretty soon, he says those frames will be fitted with about 6,000 solar panels. But first, they all need to get hooked up. If you look at all the different arrays, that's a lot of wire. We've already burned through 125,000 feet in four days. Girolamo is helping to build this solar array in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Right now, it's on track to be the state's first shared solar project. Jeff Pipeline with SeaTech Solar says these types of projects make green energy more accessible. Typically, you have to own a home, you have to have good credit, you have to have a good-facing roof in order to get solar put on your house. But with shared solar, you don't need all that. You can sign up for an array that's located somewhere else. Think of it like a community garden, but for energy. Most of the power produced in Bloomfield will benefit the town's taxpayers. But you don't have to be a local customer to take part. Another portion will benefit public housing in another town, and state residential customers can participate too, as long as they're in the same utility service area as the array. Many lower-income minority communities uh, may have high percentage of renters. Kenneth Gillingham is an associate professor at Yale University who studies energy and the economy. And so if you want to bring solar to a larger, broader group of people, shared solar from a policy perspective seems very attractive. In New England, Massachusetts has offered shared solar incentives as far back as 2014. So far, it's brought online enough energy to annually power nearly 50,000 homes. But setting all that up, it's complicated, says Michael Judge. He's with the Massachusetts Department of Energy Resources. There's a lot of different dynamics when it comes to how solar costs and benefits show up on an electric ratepayer's bill. Judge says if you subscribe to a community solar array, one benefit is simple. You get a credit on your power bill. And by providing you those credits, they would reduce your electric bills. But what if you don't subscribe? Well, this is where it gets tricky. Joseph Rosenthal, an attorney with the Connecticut Office of Consumer Counsel, says there is a cost. The design of the pilot was the general class of ratepayers pay everything. The subscribers are the ones who get the credit. Let's break that down. See, when a community solar developer contracts with a utility, it agrees to sell it power at a fixed rate. That's typically higher than the cost of getting electricity from bigger grid-scale solar projects. So ratepayers across the utility's service area all pick up that additional cost, but only subscribers get the credit on their bill. Now, there are other benefits that go to the general class of ratepayers. Cleaner air... Producing power during the peak, maybe lowering the peak power price and so forth. But still, there's that tab. Other programs have offset the extra cost of community solar by charging subscribers to sign up. But Warren Savage with the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection says that wouldn't work for the pilot study. The idea was to get as many people participating as possible. One big policy behind shared solar, especially looking at the low-income community, is to limit barriers to participation. 
Savage says the state is now working to bring more shared clean energy online. Last session, legislators approved another 150 megawatts of shared power from solar, fuel cells, wind, and hydro. But building all that will likely take years. And that same legislation also included other language that could discourage people from putting rooftop solar on their homes. Back at the muddy solar array in Bloomfield, Mike Ritchie with SeaTech Solar says when this pilot project comes online in the spring, he's hopeful it will prove community solar's worth. That it can benefit the, the town of Bloomfield to the point where the state of Connecticut will see that how valuable community solar really is and that'll promote them to, to incentivize that more. And for this project at least, it looks like demand is there. Bloomfield's community solar array isn't even fully built yet, but it's already almost fully subscribed. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. That push for more renewable energy projects like the one we just heard about has taken off in New England's relatively progressive political environment in which climate change is seen as a real problem that needs to be solved in a bipartisan way. But did you know that the roots of climate change skepticism within the Republican Party can be traced to our region, too? On the most recent episode of NHPR's Outside In podcast, host Sam Evans-Brown and environmental reporter Annie Ropeek take a look at what we can learn about the Republican Party's changing attitudes toward climate change from the powerful Sununu family of New Hampshire. Sam and Annie, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining me. Thanks Thanks for for having us. us. So why don't you start by taking us back to the early environmental movements and where the Republican Party stood before John H. Sununu arrived on the scene way back when? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people uh, remember this history, but it always bears uh, bears mentioning that, you know, when the environmental movement first began, Republicans sort of seized onto it enthusiastically. And, and a lot of our landmark imp- environmental protection laws were passed under the presidency of Richard Nixon. So, you know, the EPA, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Toxic Substances Control Act, those were all Nixon era policies. Um, and this was sort of a response to a fear that that this very popular at the time environmental uh, movement would would uh, become the the province of Democrats and Republicans would lose a lot of votes if they didn't get on board. Then fast forward a little bit past the Nixon years and it starts to change a bit in the 1980s. How was climate change perceived during that era? Well, actually, in the 1980s, climate change was was sort of the new scary thing. The the first government uh, sort of summary of climate science came out in 1979. And so the, the federal government was really just beginning to try to wrap its brain around what to do. And there was this very earnest bipartisan discussion about about the science and, and what it meant and, uh, you know, how quickly we would need to act in order to, to head off any sort of negative consequences. Uh, so, so in the 80s, it really wasn't the partisan issue that we see today. And in fact, the science wasn't really up for debate. It was it was really more of a, a, a grappling with with the implications of the science that the policymakers were hearing from, you know, government scientists. So this is where the eldest Sununu comes in again, John H. Sununu. Maybe you can talk about who exactly he, he is and, and what he thought about climate change throughout the early part of his career. Right. John H. Sununu was the governor of New Hampshire starting in 1983. Uh, He was was very popular. He was a very uh, forceful politician, very, very loud, very opinionated. Uh, You know, he crafted an excellent uh, soundbite. But, uh, you know, what he, he sort of 
leapt to the national stage after helping George H.W. Bush win the New Hampshire primary in, in exchange for which uh, George H.W. appointed him his chief of staff. So he became he became uh, the sort of the gatekeeper to the, the, the first Bush administration White House. Um, and he saw the environmentalists from the 1970s through the lens of the Cold War, I'd say. So he, he believed they were sort of anti-capitalist and had an ulterior motive behind wanting to deal with climate change. He believed that they wanted to transform the econ- economic system and was, they were using climate policy as a, as a way to do that. And, and this was really dating back to he had, he had read the sort of the population bomb in the 1960s. He had read uh, Limits to Growth, which was a report that was put out that forecast sort of economic doom because of environmental, environmental degradation. Uh, and he saw those uh, the predictions made by by those environmentalists, and and saw that they didn't go anywhere. In fact, many of them failed to materialize. Uh, and he and he believed that climate change was just sort of the next iteration of this. That you know, environmentalists forecasting doom and gloom in order to in order to get to what they were really after, which was transformation of the capitalist system. And I actually believe you know it, it, that might have been where his starting point in the 1980s. But this has only sort of hardened. Over over time, and so he, we have some tape of him here in 2013 presenting before a conference put on by the Heartland Institute, and you can really hear it. My message today is to make sure we recognize that no matter how effectively we deal with exposing the errors and games behind that agenda, we need to know that the battle will never end because the issue is not really global warming. This global warming crisis is just the latest surrogate for an overarching agenda of anti-growth and anti-development that grew and gathered support in the years after World War II. What we just heard, Sam, sounds an awful lot like what we hear from many establishment Republicans right now. Where was the rest of the Republican Party, though, back in the 1980s? How were they thinking about it outside of John H. Sununu? Well, like I said, there were a lot of Republicans who were earnestly concerned about climate change at that time. And and so, you know, I, John H. was sort of present at the birth of the party's internal division about whether to take climate change seriously or not. And at the time, the balance was in favor of action because his his boss, George H.W., had had promised to deal with climate change on the campaign trail. And, and you know, John H. Sununu really stood in the way of that action. So, so we move forward in the story to the next Sununu. This is John E. Sununu. He starts in politics back in the 1990s. Who, who's he and, and how is he different than his dad? So this is John H.'s son. Uh, we've described him as sort of the Paul Ryan of his day. He was a rising star. He was recruited after he was in the U.S. House to run against a, you know, an incumbent Republican and kind of knock him off in the Senate, and he won. Um, so he he was a, a true conservative of the '90s. He. Um, even would side with the Democrats sometimes when, you know, he thought that the Republicans weren't going far enough to uphold his conservative principles about privacy uh, and and that sort of thing. So he was sort of the next Sununu to take center stage after his father kind of got out of politics, started getting more into business in the 90s. And was his position on climate change different from, from that of his father? Well, it's interesting. It was communicated in different ways. And we have no way of knowing, you know, that deeply about what he did believe, what he had sort of adopted from his father. Um, But, you know, he remains in public life sort of 
um, through some of the 90s and into the late 2000s or the late aughts. And, you know, that was amid a much different political context than his father was part of as far as climate change goes. So we saw uh, him in office at a time when Republicans were willing to talk about market-based solutions to climate change. There were carbon cap-and-trade bills and emissions reductions bills being put forth by people like John McCain. And um, we saw John E. Sununu, again, the son, working with Delaware Democrat Tom Carper on uh, climate change-related bills. So there was some momentum toward this. All of those bills ultimately fizzled. And, you know, there's some question of, of how genuine those efforts were, how genuine, again, John E.'s feelings on the subject were, which, again, we have no way of knowing. But, you know, he talks about the topic much differently than we ever heard his father talking about it. He sounds much more open to the kind of solutions Democrats favor today. But again, you know, none of those came to pass. So it's all sort of speculation at this point. But, but there is this moment that you capture here, and I think we've got some tape, Annie, where you, you can actually hear that Republicans and Democrats maybe aren't exactly uh, agreeing on all the principles, but, but they're at least standing together talking about this as an important issue. Hi, I'm Nancy Pelosi, lifelong Democrat and Speaker of the House. And I'm Newt Gingrich, lifelong Republican, and I used to be Speaker. We don't always see eye to eye, do we, Newt? No, but we do agree our country must take action to address climate change. So that's one of my favorite sound bites that we found for this piece, because, I mean, that would just be just comically unimaginable in today's political environment. I think if you played that for Newt and Nancy today, they, you know, would probably pretend not to remember that it had happened. So that was the kind of political environment that John E. was working in. So, you know, being a conservative on climate change meant something much different than it meant either to his father or to some of his brothers, who we also talk about in the podcast. I I, I really like that piece of tape because they just deliver those lines so convincingly. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this all leads us to the Sununu who's still in politics today. This is Chris Sununu, currently the governor of New Hampshire. What do we know about his positions on climate change and how those are different from those of his father and his older brother? So Governor Chris Anu has been much more sort of circumspect and, and hedged quite a bit more on this topic than um, some of his other politician uh, family members. We've seen his rhetoric on the subject shift over the years, even if maybe his policy positions don't so much. You know, he's a, a leader of a purple state in a very titchy political environment for a Republican like him. And so, you know, climate action is a little bit um, of a, a non-starter, I think, for a lot of people in his party at this time. And we're seeing that that's why that Newt Gingrich clip is so absurd to us now, because it's just not something that the party talks about that way anymore. But um, but we do see Chris at least sort of shifting away from questioning some of the basic scientific consensus about climate change, which he used to do when he was first running for governor several years ago, to now um, – um, f- facing the science a little bit more and, and framing it quite a bit differently. And this is some tape from him on um, NHPR's show, The Exchange, from late last year. Man-made admissions have a, a part to play in climate change. Yes, fact, done. Let's move on, right? What are we go- To your original question, what are we going to do about it? Right, right? what do you do yeah, about it? Yeah, what are we going to do about it? And that's where my focus is, is in terms of what is a, a, an appropriate, not just role, but uh, position to be in terms of making sure that we're being responsible, uh, we're helping the environment, we're looking at the social impacts. And again, we're just in a, a tougher place than a lot of other states when it comes to the economic impact because we're already so burdened with these incredibly high electric rates. So that's been Chris Sununu's main focus is on electric rates, the energy implications of climate change, and just the economic impacts in general. We don't hear him talk so much about 
uh, other issues that are going to affect us here in northern New England, like sea level rise or snow loss, even though his family does still have ties to the ski industry. They own Waterville Valley, which is a ski area in northern New Hampshire. Um, but we don't hear him talk about that so much. And really, the conversation he's leading in New Hampshire is much more about renewable energy, uh, energy rates, and sort of the push-pull of the energy transition and how it's going to affect citizens. So what about the Republican Party today? We've got all these news and the way that they've shifted their message over time, sometimes to fit the political mood, sometimes out of a, a real sense that they believe something strongly. How would you characterize the party's attitude toward climate change right now? Well, I'd say, you know, it's a party at, at war with itself. I think a, a really good example of this is that there's one more Sununu to mention, which is Michael Sununu, who has never held any sort of prominent statewide elected office, but but who has made himself something of a public figure in his, his writings, where he has been very publicly questioning mainstream climate science and, uh, and whether there, you know, it, climate change is something that is of concern and whether it is something that we should be taking action on here at sort of the New England level in order to deal with. Um, and, you know, so so we do still have the, the, the Michael Sununu type voices out there within the Republican Party pushing very hard against any sort of climate action. But it, you know, and maybe this is a bit Pollyanna of me, but it does seem like the party is at something of an inflection point because public opinion really is running away from them. I mean, the, the difference between, between uh, the Republican base's opinions on climate change and the rest of the country is getting wider and wider. In our episode, we were relied on a gentleman named Jerry Taylor, who's part of something called the Niskanen Center. And he he told us that he believes that there is something of a political window of opportunity for Republicans that may open soon on this subject. Right now, most elected, I would say most elected Republicans are not the sort of uh, blind denialists that uh, seem to inhabit the White House. Now, that doesn't mean that they're ready to ambitiously act, but their minds are open. One of the, th- the only common denominator to the Republican Party from the time of Lincoln to the time of Trump, and there is only one common denominator, is that it's always been the party business, always. And as climate change becomes more and more of a problem, it's going to cause more and more losses to businesses. I would just add to that that he's talking there about ski industry businesses, that kind of thing, for example, recreation and agriculture. But it also, for me, brings to mind, again, Energy. I mean, just here in New Hampshire, just in recent months over the past year, maybe we've seen a real shift, I think, in the way that our large utilities are talking about renewable energy and are, you know, sort of the openness they're exhibiting to spending more money on that, to looking at less traditional energy solutions, um, the kind of stuff that some of our Republican leadership, including Governor Chris Sununu, have been a little hesitant about because they're worried about uh, the impacts to electric ratepayers. But I'm really interested to see sort of as that shift happens in the business world, as they see more potential for profit and decarbonization, you know, how that may sort of draw the Republicans forward on this issue in a new way. Annie Ropeek is NHPR's energy and environment reporter. Sam Evans-Brown is host of Outside In, their great podcast. They co-hosted the recent Outside In episode, The Family Business. You can find a link to the full episode at nextnewengland.org. Annie and Sam, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank Thank you. you, John. Coming up, a new poetry book will be your compass through the Pioneer Valley, and we'll meet the millennials of color who are shaping Boston's art scene. It's next.
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. At the end of March, WBUR's arts and culture team, The Artery, released an ambitious project that caught our eye, The Artery 25. The project features 25 millennials of color who are making waves in Boston's art scene. The people featured include painters, dancers, a street artist, and a violinist, among others. But what they all have in common is that they're all shaping the cultural ecosystem of the city. Maria Garcia is senior editor of The Artery, and she joins us to discuss the project. Maria, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks, John. I'm happy to be here. So how did you start this? Well, why this particular project right now? So I was thinking about this palpable energy that we're experiencing in the Boston area right now, as you said, in the cultural ecosystem. And I really wanted to capture what really feels to me as a new Boston art scene. So the Artery 25 refers to 25 millennials of color in that scene that that we think that you should watch. And these are artists and creatives like curators, even some arts administrators, um, whom we believe are impacting Boston arts in demonstrable, exciting, innovative ways. Some of them sort of upend the Boston canon or disrupt it or move it forward. But in short, we believe this list is emblematic of that new Boston art scene. I guess if it's a new Boston art scene, it's it's coming from a, an older Boston art scene. Maybe you can talk about that, about the energy that you're feeling right now that's different than what we've seen in the past. Well, I mean, I think it's no secret that Boston is a rather tradition-bound city. <laughs> um, and I think that before we didn't see a whole lot of cross-pollination between, you know, these big sort of storied legacy institutions and these more sort of community-driven grassroots art scenes. But what we're starting to experience, I think, in the last several years is that these artists sort of navigate these two spaces with such ease. You know, you can have an artist that has um, a show at the MFA and then has something at like some underground gallery um, in, in another neighborhood in Boston. And that's what's so exciting about this new generation of artistic professionals, I think. Why feature millennials of color? What does that tell us about the scene right now? Well, it was an editorial decision for us to feature millennials of color. We focused on on young people of color, recognizing that diverse creatives have historically been undercredited or underfunded or unnoticed. And cultural equity, we think, requires an intentionality and a specificity in our editorial content. So that's why we zoomed in on that uh, demographic for this series. For this project, you have uh, online components, but you also did radio features as well. And and we want to hear from some of the folks you you profiled. Let's start by by hearing a bit from uh, Layla Bermeo. Maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about her before we hear from her. Yeah, of course. So Leila Bermeo is um, a young curator at the Museum of Fine Arts here in Boston. Uh, she's Colombian and Mexican-American, and she just had this seminal moment in her career. She was the lead curator for Frida Kahlo and Arte Popular, this new exhibition at the MFA that is wildly popular. I mean, this is an exhibition that's uh, packed almost every single day. And It's an exhibition that presented Frida Kahlo in this fresh way that really strayed from these tired tropes of a tortured artist, which is how Frida Kahlo is usually portrayed. Mm -hmm. 
And instead, Bermeo focused on her artistic evolution, sort of the cultural lineage between Frida Kahlo and Mexican folk art. And it's this sort of this overlooked narrative um, that hardly gets any attention. But what really, really drew me uh, to Leila Bermeo, apart from sort of the rigor with which she curates, is um, the way she really strives to make the museum incredibly accessible for people who perhaps haven't before felt like the galleries were curated for their enjoyment. So, for example, in one of the conversations that I had with her, she sort of got unexpectedly emotional when she recounted how some of the cafe and food workers at the MFA had told her that before her exhibition, they had never gone to a gallery at the MFA. And these are employees who have been working there for many, many, many years. So so let's listen to that. Some of them have told me that they have worked at the MFA for years and never seen an exhibition. Um, and that, like, hurts me. <laughs> because it shouldn't be that way. But if I can do something to break down those barriers, I would do one every year if it meant that I could make these people feel like that museum is theirs. So you can hear the emotion in her voice and just how important this this work is for her. And for this exhibition, you know, Layla insisted that the title be in Spanglish. So it's Frida Kahlo and Arte Popular. She also insisted that the signage be both in English and in Spanish. And just the sort of the cultural cadence with which she presented this exhibition, I think, spoke to diverse audiences that, um, like I said, perhaps haven't before felt like um, the MFA's galleries were were curated for them. Hmm. I I want you to introduce us to another artist, a very different kind of artist who does a different sort of work named Tori Bullock. Who's Tori? So he's this internet artist uh, whose videos about race and gentrification in Boston reach hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and, And they're funny. His videos are funny, but they're still sort of cutting to the bone about some of the uh, major growing pains that Boston is experiencing around housing, around transportation, around some, you know, big divisions in the city. So I actually want to play a clip from one of his videos that sort of demonstrates how comical they are while still sort of speaking to these big social issues. These apartments are popping up so fast. I'm starting to feel like there's some like meteor coming down from outer space into Earth. And Morgan Freeman is standing here like, so we've been preparing a network of immense luxury condominiums. And the rest of us have to just scavenge and sit here and battle each other Mad Max style on the streets of Boston. So you can hear, you know, they're clearly produced videos. They're funny. Um, he considers himself a performance artist. He doesn't consider himself an activist. And so in that video, for example, he's talking about gentrification and rising rent prices and like the the building boom in Boston. We're seeing a bunch of condominiums sort of popping up all over the place. Uh, but they clearly, his videos clearly resonate with a ton of people because he has this sort of way of presenting these these old quandary, quandaries in like fresh new ways. It's obviously an important cultural moment that you're trying to capture here in Boston. Has this project made you reconsider or rethink anything about the the way that people do the arts, think about the arts, perform the arts in, in your city? 
Well, I certainly think that Boston is ripe for an artistic renaissance, you know, despite the fact um, that there are challenges to creating art and being a creative type here in Boston, like performing art space, uh, like housing. Despite that, there is this this new generation of artists that exists um, in both grassroots scenes and in more established sort of institutional creative scenes. And the ease with which these artists move in these two different worlds, uh, something that we hadn't seen to this degree in Boston um, up until now is, is really, really impressive for me. And with the new um, focus on philanthropic funding sources for the arts, we have more artists now than ever before, I think, that have who have the financial resources, like I said, to take big risks. And if you sort of combine these these things together, uh, I think it's very clear that that the city has the potential for a big artistic renaissance in the next decade. Mm. Maria Garcia, senior editor of WBUR's The Artery, and you can find links to this project, The Artery 25, at nextnewengland.org. Maria, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for this project. Oh, it's a pleasure to join you. Thank you so much. We're going to finish our show a few hours west of Boston in the lush Pioneer Valley. It's a place that's easy to get lost in. New England Public Radio's Carrie Healy introduces us to some poets who have created a book meant to serve as your compass to the area. For some reason, I was standing in a field of dirt beside the Connecticut River on a sunny but cold day talking with bookseller and poet Forrest Proper. It's beautiful here when you get the whole vista of the Connecticut River. It should inspire more poetry. More people should stand out here on a 12-degree day in December and be inspired to write poems. Andy wrote one. Memory in the fields is slate and soil and dry brushwood smoke. Fire red rock hearthstones grilling maize. Firecracker popping summer nights. Fire red embers of years turning cold. Our memories... Proper's poem, The Fields of Hatfield, is one among more than a 100 previously unpublished poems in a small, recently released book called Compass Roads. It was edited by the prolific author and editor Jane Yolen. I see it as a kind of compass that you could have with you when you travel around the valley. Oh, and go, oh, wait a minute, there's a poem about this, and then stop and read that poem aloud when you're at the place. Though they're all about the Pioneer Valley, there are rhymed poems, non-rhymed poems, poems about people and about place. You know, some of them are going to be very surprising to people. Poet Marion Kent wrote one of the book's surprising poems, The Setting, a gas station in the city of Springfield. Her poem is just 11 lines long. A protest of crows met at the Sunoco, sending contingents across Armory Street in Springfield. American crows in a tumult, calling news of fumbled rebellion, more ignominy than murder, more sorrow than resistance. I wrote this poem just after the election, actually, in 2016. And on Armory Street, I would drive there every day as part of my work commute. In the fall, there is actually an amazing display of bird life flying overhead. It's not happening right now, but after work, um, there would be a huge number, hundreds of these crows flying back and forth across the street. 
I was still thinking about birds as I drove 60 miles northwest towards the hills to understand and absorb a poem by Diana Gordon that coincidentally also talks about birds. It's called On West Hill Road. Blinkered to keep them from spooking at the wild turkeys on the stone wall. Here's an excerpt. My car and I stop for the slender hens, like a clique of schoolgirls with straight calves ignoring the boys. Puffed out toms working so hard to be noticed. All those erect, exhausting feathers, heads exploding blue ice, wattled red stoplights shining through the mist. Gordon says her poem was inspired by the geography and history of Holly. It's way high and it's very twisty and windy. I was passing farmhouses and thinking what it was like to build this road and be up here. Did you take into account the whole Compass Roads idea? Did you know what Jane Yolen was proposing in this? No, no. In fact, my poems are often more of imagination and and reach further than this and reach way further out of my life. Um, this was a poem of place, but I had no idea that Compass Road was coming. And, uh, you know, the whole road and the whole idea came from this trip up the road and and the idea of the farmhouses that I was passing. So it's, it's, it is site-specific in a way, but um, a poem often is a snapshot of a larger truth. And, and the turkeys were very real. <laughs> Now, do you think about uh, the experience of the reader um, actually packing the the book into the car and going on a ride? No. (laughs) No, you know, I think probably this is the kind of book that you... (laughs) It's much less romantic. You probably put it in your bathroom and you pick it up every now and again when you need to and read a poem or two. Compass Roads, a book of poems about a region that you can read anywhere. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Carrie Healy. Like the poetry we just heard, a lot of the music that comes from New England takes its inspiration from the place, like the song from Ben Cosgrove. Last week, we launched a new project to feature only music from artists right here in New England. With help from our partner stations, we've gathered lots of homegrown instrumental music of all kinds from around our region. You can find a Spotify playlist of New England-based musicians at nextnewengland.org. And if you've got music that you'd like to have featured on the show, or you'd like to let us know about a favorite artist, you can drop us a line. It's next at ctpublic.org. Find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Next New England. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Kion Wolf, Andrew Perella, and Glenn Alexander. Our music this week is by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, West End Blend, The Wolf Sisters, and Ben Cosgrove. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public's Radio.